Welcome to your shelf or mine or mine. <laughs> I'm Becky Standall, services librarian at the Longview Public Library. I'm Austin Brigden, administrative assistant at the Longview Public Library. And I'm Chris Gogsett, director of the Longview Public Library. <laughs> uh, welcome, everybody. This is kind of Austin's show today. It's National Poetry Month. <laughs> And he's our resident poet, so I'll let him take it Well, let's get started. Usually we talk about what's going on. Anything new on the library that you want to talk about, Becky? Wow, throw it right back to me. Yeah. (laughs) So um, effective April 5th, we are able to expand our in-building hours more. Our part-time staff had been furloughed for a year and came off furlough and um, came back to work at the library. We're really excited to see them. It's actually Angelique's birthday today, so that allowed us to open more hours. Now our hours are Monday through Thursday, 10 a.m. to noon, and 2 p.m. to 6 p.m., and Saturdays, noon to 4. We also are retaining the drive through hours that we've been doing for several months now. That's the big news. Yeah. Also, spring story times are in session. Tomorrow is Unicorn Day. Uh, which is a big deal to me. And um, we've got some fun crafts going on. Austin collaborated with me for April All Ages Craft, which is a seed paper bookmark craft. So the seeds come from the seed library, and the craft comes from the craft library. And the video's up on YouTube, and you can watch the instructions um, there and pick up your craft packet in library drive through yeah. That's what I'm yeah. doing. Nice. Are you going to wear your unicorn horn? <laughs> no. Oh, where is my unicorn horn? Maybe. Yeah, I, knew you, I knew you had one, so I was... Yeah. I, was <laughs> I was going to bring, and I forgot, because um, Booker has, like, a unicorn Halloween costume, and last year on Unicorn Day, Monty wore that costume for story time. Uh, but I Very nice. <laughs> and seeds are still available. Um, we're starting to finally see some spring warmth start thinking about your gardens um you can go to our website and browse the catalog make your selections and then pick them up during our drive through hours so don't forget about that well don't forget about northwest voices coming up yeah it fits fits right in (laughs) (laughs) yeah um kathleen flanagan will be coming back to us uh former washington state poet laureate she's got a new collection post-romantic out from uh, University of Washington Press, and we're very excited to have her back. I think it's going to be a great night. And that segues us very nicely into today's topic, which is poetry. Uh, It's National Poetry Month, and today Chris, Becky, and I are going to be reading some favorite poems of ours, giving you a little taste of the wide variety of American poetry. And so I'm going to turn it over to Chris to read his selections. Great. Thank you, Austin. Yeah. 
there's so many. It was when we first started talking about this, I, my mind was bouncing around and who I could possibly read from. I have a fairly eclectic uh, interest in poetry, so it's it's very random. I like there's some people I like that are extremely you know wrote hundreds of years ago, and then there's people that wrote you know yesterday, and I like them, and a lot of things in between. But one of my favorite poets is uh, also one of my favorite novelists, to be honest, is Jim Harrison. He used to be sort of the grand old man of literature in Montana, grew up in Michigan. He kind of, in in some ways, I always sort of think of him as a, as a modern-day Hemingway for uh, sort of how he writes, his style, his life, what he does, what he did, I should say. First time I really came across him, to be honest, was on uh, Anthony Bourdain's show. He did a, a segment with Jim Harrison, because Jim Harrison also wrote about food and drink and was very passionate about, about those things. And so I, uh, I discovered him at that point and found that I really enjoyed his writing, both, as I said, both his novels as well and his stories as well as his poetry. So, mm-hmm. so what, what I was going to start with first, actually, is just a quick quote that's at the, uh, the book that I have here, which is Jim Harrison's The Essential Poems. And he has a, a quote from Jim Harrison says, Poetry at its best is the language your soul would speak if you could teach your soul to speak. Mm. And, you know, and for me, poetry is always hard to describe when people ask you about it and you're trying to say, well, what is it? Well, it's not really fiction. It's not really nonfiction. It's sort of some, somewhere in between. So I've got a couple of Jim Harrison, one of his earlier ones and one of his later ones. So the first one I'm going to read is uh, entitled Northern Michigan. On this back road, the land has the juice taken out of it. Stump fences surround nothing worth their tearing down. By a deserted filling station, a Vidal sign, the rusted hulk of a Fraser, live bait on a battered tin. A barn with half a tobacco ad owns the greenness of a manure pile. A half moon on a privy door, a rope swinging from an elm. A collapsed hen house, a pump with a handle up. The orchard with wild, tangled branches. In the far corner of the pasture, in the shadow of the woodlot, a herd of twenty deer. Three bucks are showing off. They jump and churn around the fence. Flanks arch and twist to get higher in the twilight as the last light filters through the woods. Mm. And that one I was just struck by the, the description. It's sort of, I mean, it's sort of a uh, prosaic scene almost anywhere. I mean, it's, it's talking about northern Michigan, but you could see that here. You can see it in Washington and Oregon, anywhere else. And so it just really touched me for its location and its description of what rural life is like. Mm, yeah. All right. The second one I have here is called Solstice Litany. It's a little bit longer, but not that much longer. One. The Saturday morning meadowlark came in from high up with their song gliding into tall grass, still singing. How I'd like to glide around, singing in the summer, then go south to where I already was and find fields full of meadowlarks in winter. When walking my dog, I want four legs to keep up with her as she thunders down the hill at top speed, then belly flops into the deep pond. Larker dog, I crave the impossible. I'm just human. All too human. Two. I was 19 and mentally infirm when I saw the prophet Isaiah. The hem of his robe was as wide as the horizon, and his trunk and face were thousands of feet up in the air. Maybe he appeared because I had read him so much and opened too many ancient doors. I was cooking my life in a cracked clay pot that was leaking. I had found secrets I didn't deserve to know. When the battle for the mind is finally over, it's late June, green and raining. 
Three, a violent windstorm the night before the solstice. The house creaked and yawned. I thought the morning might bring a bald earth, bald as a man's bald head, but not shiny. But dawn was fine, with a few downed trees. The yellow rosebush splendidly intact. The grass was all there, dotted with black Angus cattle. The grass is indestructible except to fire, but now it's too green to burn. What did the cattle do in the storm? They stood with their butts toward the wind, erect Buddhists, waiting for nothing in particular. I was in bed, cringing at gusts, imagining the contents of earth all blowing north and piled up where the wind stopped, the pile sky high. No one can climb it. A gopher comes out of a hole, as if nothing happened. Four. The sun should be a couple of million miles closer today. It wouldn't hurt anything. Anyway, this cold, rainy June is hard on me and the nesting birds. My own nest is stupidly uncomfortable, the chair of many years. The old windows don't keep the weather out, the wet wind whipping my hair. The very old robin drops dead on the lawn, the first for me. Millions of birds die, but we never see it. They like privacy in this holy, fatal moment, or so I think. We can't tell each other when we die. Others must carry the message to and fro. He's gone, they'll say. While writing an average poem, destined to disappear among the millions of poems written down by mortally average poets. Five. Solstice at the cabin deep in the forest. The full moon shines in the river. There are pale green northern lights. A huge thunderstorm comes slowly from the west. Lightning strikes a nearby tamarack, bursting into flame. I go into the cabin feeling unworthy. At dawn, the tree is still smoldering. In this place, the gods touched earth. And that's the end of that poem. Beautiful. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's very, uh, very vivid in its description. It's very, I mean, for me it is, it's very easy to feel those connections both to the, the natural earth and to, uh, life and, and obviously all of us are passing and how, you know, we're all going out the same way and yeah, we can't really tell our own story when we've died. died. It's up to others to do it for us. Yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely going to go grab some Jim Harrison books after this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Since I read Harrison. Man. Wow. Okay. I am mostly reading Northwest uh, Poets, and I was going to start with Richard Hugo. Yeah, um, who I don't Montana know if... guys. Yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> Hugo is like Montana, but also Northwest. He uh, grew up in White Center, which I think has been subsumed by Seattle by now, and then he ended up in Montana. But he actually... Worked as a technical writer for Boeing for 13 years until he had quietly writing his poems. And he always said that it worked really well because, like, there were 62,000 employees at Boeing and none of them cared if he wrote any poems. And so he just sort of <laughs> was able to work in this vacuum. And then he published his first book and he got uh, offered a job uh, in Missoula teaching. But um, really interesting poet. And I went back and forth on which ones to read. There's uh, – and I – I was going to try to read something different, but I feel like I have to read. It's probably his most famous poem. It's called Degrees of Grey in Phillipsburg. It's about Phillipsburg, Montana. You might come here Sunday on a whim. Say your life broke down. The last good kiss you had was years ago. You walk these streets laid out by the insane, past hotels that didn't last, bars that did, the tortured try of local drivers to accelerate their lives. Only churches are kept up. The jail turned 70 this year. The only prisoner is always in, not knowing what he's done. The principal supporting business now is rage. 
hatred of the various grays, the mountain sands, hatred of the mill, the silver bill repeal, the best-liked girls who leave each year for Butte. One good restaurant and bars can't wipe the boredom out. The 1907 boom, eight going silver mines, a dance floor built on springs. All memory resolves itself in gaze. In panoramic green, you know the cattle eat. Or two stacks high above the town, two dead kilns, the huge mill and collapse for 50 years that won't fall finally down. Isn't this your life, that ancient kiss still burning out your eyes? Isn't this defeat so accurate, the church bell simply seems a pure announcement, ring and no one comes? Don't empty houses ring? Are magnesium and scorn sufficient to support a town, not just Phillipsburg, but towns of towering blondes, good jazz and booze, the world will never let you have until the town you came from dies inside? Say no to yourself. The old man, twenty when the jail was built, still laughs, although his lips collapse. Someday soon, he says, I'll go to sleep and not wake up. You tell him no. You're talking to yourself. The car that brought you here still runs. The money you buy lunch with, no matter where it's mined, is silver, and the girl who serves your food is slender, and her red hair lights the wall. So that's that's probably Hugo's most famous poem. And he, he'd never been to Phillipsburg, Montana. He, like, was there. He's like, he was a very interesting guy. And his poems are very, I mean, all poetry is super language-driven. But he's very sound-driven. Like, sense follows sound sometimes in Hugo poems. And uh, he just, like, got up at 5 in the morning. He was in Phillipsburg. And he's just like, I know what this place is about. And he wrote this poem. <laughs> um, I've, always, I've always liked be- that one. Be curious to think what people of Phillipsburg thought of that. <laughs> if they agree with, if they would agree with him or not. I mean, again, you know, you have that redemption at the end. Okay. I'm going to read one more Hugo poem. This one's called, uh, The River Now. Hardly a ghost left to talk with. The Slavs moved on or changed their names to something green. Greeks gave up old dishes and slid into repose. Runs of salmon thin and thin until a ripple in October might mean carp. Huge mills bang and smoke. Day hangs thick with commerce and my favorite home, always overgrown with roses, collapsed like moral advice. Tugs still pound against the outtied poor, but real, running on some definite fuel. I can't dream anything. Not some lovely woman murdered in a shack. Not sawmills going broke. Not even wild wine in a landslide, though I knew both well. The blood still begs direction home. This river points the way north to the blood, the blue stars certain in their swing, their fix. I pass the backwash where the cattails still lean north. Familiar grebes pop up, the wind chill is the same, and it comes back with the odor of the river. Some way I know the lonely sources of despair break down from too much love. No matter how this water fragments in the reeds, it rejoins the river and the bright bay north receives it all. New salmon on their way to open ocean. The easy tub returned. There's another Hugo one. And then um, the third poem I'm going to read is from Kathleen Flanagan, who will be with us uh, on the 21st. And it's from her previous collection, Plume, which was largely written uh Hanford, where she grew up. Um, and her dad was an engineer there. And a really fabulous collection. Um, and this poem, Richland Doc 2006, is actually in our magazine room um, in a broadside by Joe and Marquita Green. 
Um, and if if y'all haven't had a chance to visit it there, you should. It's, there's something really special about broadsides and the way you get to visit a poem that way. Um, but this is called <clears throat> Richland Dock, 2006. The Columbia rolls on through the desert, unimpressed and unattached. A woman who doesn't need boys to dance. A king's parade of golden carriages. An endless line of warrior ants. The river speaks French in a land of inferior grammar. The river is blue in a field of brown, green in a field of gray, black in a field of bronze. The river shuns the desert. It holds its tongue. It saves itself for the ocean. The river is fast, undammed, Rapunzel's hair let down, and won't allow this shrub-step plain to climb it. The river won't lend itself to grow a tree. Look, sagebrush flush with its banks, no meeting, no kiss, no marriage. Look at the tumbleweeds. The river bathes in its glory. The desert eats dust. The river belongs to somewhere else. The mighty river passes, not touching, but not untouched. So that's that one. That's a great poem. I always always like that one by her. Is that a good one? It is a fabulous one. Yeah, yeah. So everybody listening should come to that event Mm because there's a lot more where that came from. When is this event? It is April 21st, 7 p.m. on Zoom. You can find the link to that Zoom on the library's website. Yes. And then the last one I'm going to read is totally different. It's not by a Pacific Northwest poet. And it's it's a more formal poem, but I've always liked it. Um, and it's by Elizabeth Bishop. And it's called Letter to New York. Letter to New York for Louise Crane. In your next letter, I wish you'd say where you are going and what you are doing. How are the plays and after the plays, what other pleasures you're pursuing? Taking cabs in the middle of the night, driving as if to save your soul, where the road goes round and round the park, and the meter glares like a moral owl, and the trees look so queer and green, standing alone in big black caves, and suddenly you're in a different place, where everything seems to happen in waves, and most of the jokes you just can't catch, like dirty words rubbed off a slate, and the songs are loud, but somehow dim, and it gets so terribly late. And coming out of the brownstone house to the gray sidewalk, the watered street, one side of the buildings rises with the sun like a glistening field of wheat. Wheat, not oats, dear. I'm afraid if it's wheat, it's none of your sowing. Nevertheless, I'd like to know what you're doing and where you're going. (laughs) That's what I've got. That's great. Yeah. So do you guys find that you're drawn to like a particular style or something when you're thinking about the poems that you really like or or that you really remember pieces of hmm. <laughs> yeah it's a good question i mean that's hard that's a hard question i think that's what i said i feel like that's always what makes poetry so hard because sometimes it's hard to just dis- i sometimes it's hard for me to identify exactly what's attracting me to it uh, sometimes it's the language sometimes it's the uh, imagery you know, because I'm so visual. Well, like the one you just read, you're so picturing New York. I mean, and then that within that, there's just, you can't help but do it based on the words she used. But yeah, it's yeah. so hard to talk about. It is. And, and there's such a diversity of voice. I mean, even just in poetry in general, but in American poetry, it's a wild spectrum of stuff. But yeah, the language, I probably mostly gravitate to more sort of tactile poems like the Harrison poems you read like Hugo that are real sensory you know 
Imagist kind of poems. What's that? I said something more like Imagist. Yeah, and earthy, you know, and, 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 and tangible. But then anytime I say anything I like about poetry, then I can think of an exception. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> somebody else, I think the strength of the voice, the tone is a big part of it. I don't know. I've come, I'm appreciating formal poetry more than I used to. I remember when I, I used to try to write, when I was a kid, I'd write poems, and I thought poetry was just sort of like, it was like a riddle. You just tried to make all the rhymes fit, and that was all it took. And I remember going to a reading that they did at LCC, and I don't remember who who read, and it was free verse poetry. And I remember just being like, I don't understand what they're doing. Like, I can feel it. You know, I feel it. It doesn't rhyme. <laughs> like, how, do, how are they doing it? How are they making those things happen? And a lot of it's by ear. I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question at all, but. Yeah. Well, it's hard. I know. Yeah, poetry. yeah. Yeah, because we were talking about some of those ones. Because I also like, you know, like Mary Oliver, who's not, I wouldn't say, as earthy as. Oh. <laughs> She's a little more ethereal at times, even. or um, Yeah, much more uh, spare a lot of the yeah, time. Yes. And more, and I'm thinking, not thinking of the word I want. But just, yeah, but it's very different. It just, as I said, I guess it's, yeah, sometimes it's probably the voice, too. Just someone's voice. That, just like, I, I think it works that way in, you know, fiction especially as well. That sometimes you like someone just because of the voice they're using. Or the voice they use. There are no yeah. rules. At the end of the day. Like, you get it, if you're good enough, you can get away with whatever you want. <laughs> That's right. People will say, you know, I can think of that in prose, too. There are writers who people will say that, you know, you have to be showing all the time, you know, and stuff. And there are writers who totally break that rule. And they're good. If the voice is strong enough, you just don't care. Mm-hmm. Which is one yeah. of the wonderful things, I guess, too. Yeah, there's not one answer. No. <laughs> and everyone's answer is different, which is what's always interesting. So, Yeah. Do you, either of you ever read, like, novels in verse? I think that's a – there's a lot of young adult fiction that's written in verse, and it's, like, a popular form for teens. I feel like it really gets down. And I've listened to a lot of authors who write that way talk about how it really makes you really get down to, like, the the feelings and, like, the immediacy of especially what it's like to be a teenager – that's interesting. It's interesting to see that form coming back in that way, because when I think of like novels in verse, something like John Berryman and like um, kind of some books that are probably seem pretty esoteric. Now. <laughs> but um, I haven't much. I haven't much. I've always meant to read David Rakoff. Um, I don't know if either of you know. He used to be on This American Life a lot. Passed away. Know, He's actually I where I got that letter from New York poems. He read it somewhere, and I loved it. But he wrote poems. Or he wrote a lot of. Um, not always novels, but like sometimes short stories in verse and then novels. And I've meant, always meant to try that form more. Well, it's interesting because it kind of goes some way f- goes back to the, you know, the ancient epic poems, you know, of, you know which I've read, obviously, some of that. But I, it's hard to it's hard for me to read. Long, I mean, those kind of epic poems or those novels in verse, because poetry, I like to really linger on the language a lot of times. And if I'm doing that, it's, it's, you can do that in a poem, especially if it's a shorter poem. But it's harder to do that when you're trying to also follow a story, <laughs> trying to kind of right. keep the story going. So you sort of you have to go back to it. You have to if you have, almost have to read it as a story and then go back and start appreciating. For at least for me, and then go back and start appreciating the language after the fact more because it's just it's difficult to do both at the same time <laughs> for me at least. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um. And there's like two, like you can get like, um, like Alan Hopkins' first books for teens, which are like 
big honking long ones. And then sometimes you'll find just like really thin, um, really short novels and verse. One of my favorite ones that's for teens is called I Felt a Funeral in My Brain, which is from an Emily Dickinson poem, that title. Yeah. And it's by uh, Will Walton. And it's about um, and it's really pretty nonlinear. It's about this teenage boy who's dealing with his grandfather being ill and dying with this relationship, like a kind of romantic relationship he's having with a friend of his and also him probably becoming an alcoholic as a teenager. Yeah. Um, so it's like all of these different things that he's dealing with and how they all come together. And I really, really loved that book. And I, I remember like reading it and finishing it and thinking like, this is um, the kind of book like someone's going to read as a teenager and then it's just going to be their favorite book for, <laughs> you know, they take it to college and try to find somebody who also loves that book. Yeah. And there's this one line in it, and I remember writing it down. He says that there's something he's learning that, oh, gosh, how does it go? Something about, like, the the bruises that we push on us we, when we're young are the ones we keep pushing on as we grow older. Mm. Anyways, I think when I yeah. read poems, I really like... I like rhythm a lot, mm-hmm. um, and often it's the rhythm that's going to be something that I makes me remember a line or something from a poem later, things that can come back to me, I think of. Um, and I do like imagery and also something that, like, really catches the feeling that you have. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it, 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 yeah, it's very, it definitely hits to the, I don't know, the nerve endings of emotions, I think, often as, you know, as opposed mm-hmm. to just, just, just not just touching the emotion, but really getting to the, the heart of those emotions. Mm-hmm. So, so it's pretty powerful. I love not, when you have a poem like that where lines will come to you. I've certainly had different, through different parts of my life, different poems where I'll just be, you know, walking around or doing something and a line will kind of come back to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Degrees of Gray in Phillipsburg was that poem for me for a long time. And I would just be like doing something and I, you know, don't empty houses ring or some line would come to my head, you know. And, uh, you always know a good, it's a good one if, if that happens. Yeah, I was telling Austin yesterday when we were talking about this podcast about one of the poems that comes to my mind a lot is Praise Song for the Day, which, um, Elizabeth Alexander wrote for Barack Obama's inauguration. Mm-hmm. Just a couple of lines that she says, but one where, she says the figuring out at kitchen tables is a it's like a line that comes to my mind a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah, it's kind of like a rhythm to it and also like a an image. Yeah. You guys ready for me to read some T.S. Eliot? Yeah, I would love to listen, but I'm, of course I'm going to have to duck out because <laughs> oh. I love a little T.S. Eliot. But <laughs> I've got to get ready to go. Someone's well, got to go on. Yeah, yeah, go, yeah, we'll record it. I'll listen to it on the recording of it so I can, <laughs> so I can hear it because I do like T.S. Eliot and I. So I'm sorry I have to miss that, but someone's got to go cover the door. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for, for joining us, Chris. Absolutely. I'm always happy to be great. here. Bye. Bye. T.F. Eliot. So um, there was a couple of us thinking of, like, poems I like, things that come back to me, mm-hmm. or um, poets I really like. I really love William Carlos Williams. Mm. That kind of a combination of, like, imagery and also kind of daily life. And I also, I think, too, there's something in, like, the stuff that you like, Austin, about, the like, the poems of the working people. Yeah. Um, that is not T.S. Eliot. <laughs> I was going to say, what an interesting segue to T.S. Eliot. 
Because, you know, I think of a lot of different people when you say working class poems, but. Uh. Well, I wasn't talking about T.S. Eliot when I was talking about working class poems. I was talking about um, William Carlos Williams. William Carlos Williams. Philip Levine uh, is a good, great. I think I've read you some of his poems. Great poet of Detroit. Um, great poem uh, poet of, of the car plants. Most of them have bad words, so I, I, I'm not reading them here, but. Anyway. Um. So T.S. Eliot um, was an American, but he lived, I think, most of his life in England and ended up becoming an English citizen. And I feel like he's the modern poet maybe that you read the most in, like, college if you take a, you know, <laughs> modern literature course. Um, right. So I have my little copy, and this is from my college class. Um, of really? The- yeah, The Wasteland and other poems, and I'm not going to read The Wasteland, although when I think of National Poetry Month, the poem I think of is The Wasteland, you know? Yeah. April is the cruelest month. Sure is. Tax month. <laughs> um, right? Right. So, but in The Wasteland, he talks about April being the cruelest month because it makes you think that um, things are alive and living and, like, uh, possible, and it's all a lie. Whoa. <laughs> it's like a... Oh, man. Yeah. Um, he had an interesting life. I, I haven't, like, you know, refreshed anything I know about T.S. Eliot, but, like, his more famous poems, like The Wasteland and The Love Song of J.F.O. Prufrock, he wrote uh, when he was younger, and then he, like, got religion later in life, and his poems mm. became a lot more, like, hopeful um, sure. and and religious. Um, which was like an interesting. It's an interesting twist. Yeah, trajectory. Yeah. So you're gonna read to us? So I'll read to you. I was gonna read the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. It starts. Um, there's like a. What's it called at the beginning? Uh. Oh gosh, it's fallen out of my brain. Oh no. It'll come to me. Um, but it's in like Italian. Oh, okay. You're not gonna read that one. <laughs> I'm not gonna read it. Okay. Okay. So this love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. This is fun. There's little notes in it. Okay. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky, like a patient etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights and one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells. Streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question. Oh, do not ask, what is it? Let us go and make our visit. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. The yellow fog that rubs its back upon the window panes, the yellow smoke that rubs its muzzle on the window panes, licked its tongue into the corners of the evening, lingered upon the pools that stand in drains, that fall upon its back, the soot that falls from chimneys, slipped by the terrace, made a sudden leap, and seeing that it was a soft October night, curled once about the house and fell asleep. And indeed there will be time for the yellow smoke that slides along the street, rubbing its back upon the window panes. There will be time, there will be time, to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. There will be time to murder and create in time for all the works and days of hands that lift and drop a question on your plate. Time for you and time for me and time yet for a hundred indecisions and for a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of a toast and tea. 
In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. And indeed, there will be time to wonder, do I dare? And do I dare? Time to turn back and descend the stair with a bald spot in the middle of my hair. They will say, how his hair is growing thin. My morning coat, my collar mounting firmly to the chin, my necktie rich and modest, but asserted by a simple pin. They will say, how his arms and legs are thin. Do I dare disturb the universe? In a minute, there is time for decisions and revisions, which a minute will reverse. For I have known them all already, known them all, have known the evenings, mornings, afternoons. I have measured out my life with coffee spoons. I know the voice is dying with the dying fall beneath the music from a farther room. So how should I presume? And I have known the eyes already, known them all, the eyes that fix you in a formulated phrase. And when I am formulated, sprawling on a pin, when I am pinned and wriggling on the wall, then how should I begin to spit out all the butt ends of my days and ways? And how should I presume? And I have known the arms already, known them all, arms that are braceleted and white and bare, but in the lamplight downed with light brown hair. Is it perfume from a dress that makes me so digress? Arms that lie along a table or wrap about a shawl. And should I then presume? And how should I begin? Shall I say, I have gone at dusk through narrow streets and watched the smoke that rises from the pipes of lonely men in shirt sleeves leaning out of windows. I should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silent seas. In the afternoon, the evening, sleep so peacefully, smoothed by long fingers, asleep, tired, or it malingers, stretched on the floor here beside you and me. Should I, after tea and cakes and ices, have the strength to force the moment to its crisis? But though I have wept and fasted, wept and prayed, though I have seen my head, grown slightly bald, brought in upon a platter, I am no prophet, and here's no great matter. I have seen the moment of my greatness flicker, and I have seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker, and in short, I was afraid. And would it have been worth it after all, after the cups, the marmalade, the tea, among the porcelain, among some talk of you and me, would it have been worthwhile to have bitten off the matter with a smile, to have squeezed the universe into a ball, to roll it towards some overwhelming question, to say, I am Lazarus, come from the dead, come back to tell you all, I shall tell you all. If one, settling a pillow by her head, should say, that is not what I meant at all, that is not it at all. And would it have been worth it after all? Would it have been worthwhile after the sunsets and the dooryards and the sprinkled streets, after the novels, after the teacups, after the skirts that trail along the floor, and this and so much more? It is impossible to say just what I mean. But as if a magic lantern threw the nerves and patterns on a screen, would it have been worthwhile if one, settling a pillow or throwing off a shawl, and turning toward the window should say, that is not it at all, that is not what I meant at all. No, I am not Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be. I am an attendant lord, one that will do to swallow progress, start a scene or two, advise the prince, no doubt an easy tool, deferential, glad to be of use, politic, cautious, and meticulous, full of high sentence, but a bit obtuse, at times indeed almost ridiculous, almost at times the fool. I grow old and grow old. I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. Shall I part my hair behind? Do I dare to eat a peach? 
I shall wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach. I have heard the mermaids singing, each to each. I do not think that they will sing to me. I have seen them riding seaward on the waves, combing the white hair of the waves blown back when the wind blows the water white and black. We have lingered in the chambers of the sea by sea girls wreathed with seaweed red and brown till human voices wake us and we drown. Oh, the end. beautiful, beautiful and beautiful reading. Oh, I'm going to have to go get some Jim Harrison. I'm going to have to go get some T.S. Eliot. I'm <laughs> going to stop everything else I'm doing and just read poetry. That's great. There are some lines in here that I think of a lot. I think of that. Do I, I dare to eat a peach? <laughs> yeah. I have measured out my life with coffee spoons. Mm-hmm. And that whole, um, you know, there will be time. There will be time. Yes. What a beautiful, yeah, such a beautiful poem. And so expansive. Mm-hmm. There are parts of the wasteland, too, I think about quite a bit, where they say, and I feel like, I guess I studied this so closely with, like, the Great Gatsby uh-huh. that I... I think of them together. What year was it written? Um, or published, I should say. So this collection was published in 1934. Okay. Uh, when was so? So it's right in there with is a con- yeah. Yes, they were written in the 20s. Contemporary. So the wasteland was uh, wasteland came out in 1922, and the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock 1915. Yeah. There's like a couple of little like college class notes in this book <laughs> from notes from you mm-hmm. mm. young becky young from becky. young becky <laughs> it's the name of my memoir notes from young becky just like scrawling in there like you're wrong or <laughs> no <laughs> symbol no. question mark at the um in the i always beginning. get books like used books and it'll say like symbol question mark somebody will have written and that always cracks me up. Um, I have a little note in the beginning of the love song of J. Phil Prufrock when he says, it goes like a patient etherized upon the table. And then my note says, zing, with an exclamation mark. <laughs> which is, That's so Becky. It was probably something like that my professor said, and I like note wrote it down. Zing. So what are some poems that you always think of that always come to your your mind? Oh, gosh. Like I said, I mean... I feel like there have been, I really love poetry. And for a long time, I thought that would be what I wrote. And it didn't end up really being what I wrote, but I think it informs what I try to write. And there were periods where, like, certain poems would be kicking around, right? Because, like, I don't know, this is real nerdy. But, like, when I was, like, a teenager and stuff, I was always, like, not doing my homework or not doing things in order to, like, read poems online. Mm -hmm. Like, just sneaking them in all the time. And poems are nice in that way, that you can be, like, constantly, like, I'm just going to read a poem right here and a poem right here. And so you, <laughs> you take in a tremendous amount of poetry. Hugo's poems a lot. Um, I think there were periods where William Stafford, who's sort of a, you know, patron saint of poetry in the Pacific Northwest, some of his poems would come to mind a lot. God, what is that poem called? It's about the river. It's being uh, being frozen over. Uh, and there's a line where he says, you know, that it, how does that go? Uh, it's called Ask Me. Maybe I'll find it. I'm going to find it and read it. <laughs> um, but yes, there's, there's been just, uh, Terrence Hayes, um, who's the much more contemporary poet, but some of his poems would come to my mind a lot. Uh, Yusuf Kumanyaka, 
he has this poem. It's like the, it's called the, the Blue Light Lounge Sutra for the band at some hotel. Uh, and he has a, has a line where he says, hooked into every hungry groove. And a lot of times I would think hungry groove. Whoa. I also you know? like that, um, like an alliteration that hooked into the. Mm. Oh. Yeah. That poem. I think I read that poem. I do. That rhythm is very appealing. I think I read that poem last year during my, um, poem marathon extravaganza, Mm -hmm. which I kind of miss. Oh, that was so fun. I read so many. It was so hard to pick poems today because I was like, last year I had like, well, you know, I've got 30 days. I'll read three poems a day. So I learned 90 poems, 100 poems. And now I'm like, oh, just a few. And those are still up on our Instagram, so if people want to go and check it out, I think yeah. I only missed like two days in April. It was a wonderful, it was a really wonderful experience, and it was a, I mean, it was great because it sort of returned me to poetry, which is kind of my roots, and at a time that was really difficult, um, and it was very grounding to have that every day in a really, I mean, this this whole year has been crazy, but that was such a disoriented time, mm-hmm. and getting up and just being like, I just need to pick some poems was yeah. nice and uh, I tried there's it's impossible but I try to pick really disparate poems and poets and stuff to give people kind of an idea of the just the breadth of this world of poetry but you know since William Stafford who's from Kansas but taught at Lewis and Clark for a million years is sort of the patron saint of poetry people celebrated his birthday birthday parties for William Stafford all over they still happen all over the northwest every January and the man's been gone since 1993. It's really a beautiful thing. People just gather and read his poems to each other. Because poems can be so, I feel like you really carry them with you, and they can shape the way you look at things, and they can really be so important to people. But I'll read this. This poem was one I thought of a lot. It's called Ask Me. Sometime when the river is ice, ask me mistakes I have made. Ask me whether what I have done is my life. Others have come in their slow way into my thought, and some have tried to help or to hurt. Ask me what difference their strongest love or hate has made. I will listen to what you say. You and I can turn and look at the silent river and wait. We know the current is there, hidden, and there are comings and goings from miles away that hold the stillness exactly before us. What the river says, that is what I say. Um, That line holding the stillness, exact comings and goings from miles away that hold the stillness exactly before us. I thought about that a lot, and I love the direct address in poems, too. Mm-hmm. Sort of asked me. Um, so Chris was talking about, like, uh, you know, like the epic poems, and I remember in college doing um, Beowulf, which starts in the Old English, like, what? It's like the, <laughs> that's the, you know, pay attention, I'm telling a story, I don't know what it means, like, hey, everybody. Um, but I remember we had like a party at the end of that class and we got a big cake and it said what on it. Oh. Yeah. It's interesting when you're talking about, I just think novels in verse, mm-hmm. epic poem or book length poems, light verse even, which is really a, a, a much beleaguered genre. Different kinds of poems try to do different kinds of things, you know? And I feel like if you're writing long like that, the individual lines, there's more of an accumulative power. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, a poem like that, Stafford poem, you're making something happen real quick. And it's a real, like, you know, sudden little moment. And I think that's so interesting. But that's a good example of 
very different than Hugo's style, which is very earthy and is very like tactile. And Stafford can be tactile too, but that's a much more just a sort of voice-driven poem. It's like a voice talking to you. I also liked, yeah, anything that has like a good contrast. Um, I talked to you before about liking Miller Williams. Yeah. Lucinda's Path. <laughs> yeah. And he has, I think this was his last collection, Time in the Tilting Earth. Like a lot of those poems are about, they like contrast the physiological stuff that's like happens in your body or like a scientific process that happens in the world with like what it looks like or how it feels. Mm. Um, which I, I find very delightful because he's like, there's this one where he talks about like, you know, this is a chemical process is happening. Like this makes a chain reaction to this and it makes you feel this thing. Um, and then he says, but you would never know that. Oh gosh, what is the line? You know, when something, something or leaning into a lover's embrace, mm. like it contrasts, mm. like, and they're like hard to pronounce like words about, you know, chemicals in your body. <laughs> and it's like, but you don't think about this stuff when it's like the poet, poetry is happening. I really yeah. like that. Yeah. Well, that's, this has been nice. Yeah. Poetry's good for you. I should say before we go that uh, we'll be doing another poetry-centered episode later in the month, uh, and we're going to be joined by a special guest, Heidi Bauer, professor of English at Lower Columbia College, published poet, a great friend of the library and our primary partner in the Northwest Voices series. Uh, she's very excited. We're very excited to have a poet on to talk about, to read some of her work and talk about what it's like to be a poet and what it's like to be a poet during COVID and, and whatever else yeah. she wants to talk about. So don't, you know, if you, if you like this, come back don't, for that. Don't change your dial. Yeah. Don't touch that dial. Don't right. touch that dial. Any, and, any final thoughts? Anything you want to point to? Any, any line you want to say? I just want to say, uh, thanks for joining us for this little interlude of poetry you know uh, I think people sometimes come to poetry sort of thinking that it's a very particular thing and maybe that's because of the education that they had or you know just sort of ideas floating around there's such a diversity of voices in American poetry um, there's probably something out there for you that you didn't even think that speaks to you who you are you know the language you speak so um, I think it's a really useful thing in this time I think it can be a sort of a bomb, a B-A-L-M, bomb, and uh, and also it's sort of can, a, a retuning. You know, you can turn from poetry to the world and, and see it differently. And I encourage you all to get out there this April and, and, and read some poems. Read them I, to each other. Yeah. I do think that's probably why April was chosen for Poetry Month, right? There's just like a sense of... Yeah. It's the cruelest month. It's the coolest yeah. month. Um, oh, maybe but we don't also, agree with Elliot. No. no. Well, and that's also like, uh, what do they say in the Canterbury Tales? It's April um, when, I say, Lungan folk to go on pilgrimages. So it's like the, the <laughs> time of year when people long to go on a pilgrimage. Did April. we just get a little Old English? That's actually Middle English. Middle English. Hey, I, I have an idea. So, you know, uh, let's close this thing out. You want to give us another little taste of Middle English to close us out? <laughs> um, sure. I can do the, just the beginning of the Canterbury Tales. Like yeah, the two yeah. Lines that I know that Quanet April with its Shira Sutta, the Druct of March hath pierced to the Ruta. Uh, gosh, I know parts and it's not in order. 
Well, that's okay. We don't know what it means, but don't you love the sound of it, folks? <laughs> well, I think with that, Becky's got a story time to do. I'm going to uh, go do story time. We can't keep the kids waiting, so thank you all for joining us. Yeah, thanks for listening to your shows. Or mine. I'm Becky. I'm Austin. Bye. Bye. Support for Your Shelf or Mine comes from the friends of the Longview Public Library, the Longview Library Foundation, and listeners like you. Your Shelf or Mine jingle is written and performed by Megan McKeldery from A Song for You. Find Megan online at ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery. That's M-E-A-G-H-A-N-M-C-E-L-D-E-R-R-Y. ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery.